Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this evening. We will be looking in Psalm 49, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 472 and 73. We'll hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and therefore authoritative Word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others." Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise, When you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Lord, again for the revealing of yourself in your holy word, and we pray, please speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you, perhaps, are those type A go-getters, and you read ahead, and you looked at Psalm 49, and you were trying to figure out, are we quite certain this is a psalm? It sounds a little bit more like a proverb, and there is truth in that. The problem with the matter, as it were, the sermon title is Riches and Redemption. The problem with that title is I found a better one in about Thursday afternoon. And so we're going to stick with Riches and Redemption, but I would like to give you a little bit of slang for a better title. There's a dear friend of the ministry staff of the church, and this person was well, culturizing us with some news of other actors, actresses, and famous people. And the phrase that was used, I appreciated. They get dirty for the dollar. 
And that's probably a more fitting title for this sermon. When you look at Psalm 49, what are, what's the question? What are they answering? Do you get dirty for the dollar? Do you take and trust in something that will expire, that will, in fact, not save? And if I could be as bold as to say something like this, you might suggest that this psalm is somewhat of a commentary, if you could call it a commentary, on Luke 12. That is the parable of the rich fool. Now, of course, it can't be a commentary when it's written beforehand. But if you understand the parable of the rich fool, perhaps with that mindset, you might better understand what is taking place in Psalm 49. And so I want to look at it in four points. The last one will sound a lot nicer, so don't be sad that there's four instead of three. The first is the call. The second is the circumstances. The third is the contrast. And most fitting, the last is the conclusion. And so it will be a point, but I want you to think the call, the circumstance, the contrast, and the conclusion. The psalmist here, in fact, wastes no time, does he? He begins very quickly, hear this, all peoples. A call goes out right away, and I think that there are a few things that we should consider simply from verse 1. When the psalmist says, hear this, all peoples. The language doesn't appear to be significant, but perhaps you and I could stop and say, what doesn't the psalmist say in verse 1? The psalmist doesn't say, hey, Israel, pay attention for a moment. I would like to tell you something. The psalmist is not saying, people of God, look up here. I have something for you. Or Christians, now is the time to give ear. There's an important word. What does the psalmist say? Hear this, all peoples. The call has now just gone out to any and to everyone. This is something for the entire world. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. The psalmist, you might say, is not writing or singing, if you wanted to say it that way, merely to Israel. There's no nuanced language to just specify that this is just for the church. So only the church should listen. Actually, no, the psalmist is quite broad. It's saying it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Listen, give ear to what I am about to say, because it's a matter of wisdom for everyone. Look at the language that the psalmist uses, both low and high, rich and poor. What are they trying to suggest? It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you are. This is for you. You and I need to give attention to it. And so what do, you, what do you make of something like that? Well, I think we need to be reminded as believers, the Bible is not the, secret, uh, the book of secrets merely for Christians. This is meant to be disclosed and revealed to all people. No matter what they believe, no matter what they think, they ought to, in fact, hear the word of God. It is to proclaim to all people because it in fact is the truth, not a truth, but the truth. And therefore, if it is the truth, it should be presented to all. And so you get this picture of how do we respond to people in society? You use the word of God. Have you considered that in your day-to-day conversation? How do I respond to people, whether in positive or negative? The word of God provides a truth in which 
all people at all times and all places need to hear. There, you might say, is a sanctified wisdom that might come from your mouth. You and I for sure need it for our own souls, but we should not say to ourselves, they don't believe this, therefore I won't tell them that. This psalmist is saying, that's foolish. Wisdom is for all, and if you want true wisdom, where is it found? In the word of God. And so he begins, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And then he makes another statement. Perhaps you thought it was arrogant or shocking. What does he say? My mouth shall speak wisdom. It almost sounds like that's coming from a child. That's what children say. Mom, dad, you need to hear me. I have something to say to you, and it's, it's what you need to do. My kids, they're on this, well, they want us to give them a yes day. And I've never heard of such a thing. It's probably never going to happen. And they're not in here at the moment, and so they don't know that I'm telling them. There is no, no yes day. There is a perhaps day or a we'll see day. But what is the psalmist saying here? Give ear. My mouth is going to speak wisdom. What does the psalmist say immediately after that? What is he trying to say? The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. Do you notice what he's suggesting here? I'm going to speak something of wisdom to you, but first I'm going to gain it. Before I speak, I listen. And now who is the psalmist talking about? Where is this wisdom that they're going to get it from? Well, he's going to get it from God. You don't necessarily read this and go, I can quote verse by verse where they're Uh, citing it from. But in fact, as we unpack this psalm, you're going to find out the Old Testament is in fact informing this psalmist why he is saying the things by which he is saying. And so he's going to say, where should we listen? We listen to God. If we want wisdom, we go to God. And so what he's doing right now in the beginning, yes, all people need to hear it. And if you want wisdom, he connects wisdom with the word. It's not so much about being smarter. He's saying, if you want to be wise, you need to know the word. You need to have a biblical framework. If we're going to think through life appropriately and rightly, we need a biblical framework. And so as it was perhaps joked upon me this morning in my spiritual gift of eating, yes, the Bible is a treasure trove of food. You should eat. It is great food for your soul. It is also a treasure for understanding. And so we do not read the word merely just to feed our souls. We do need to feed our souls. It is also for our greatest wisdom and our greatest learning. And so we want to have a lens by which we see the world, and it's called Scripture. We do not want to take Scripture and try to overlay it on our life. The Bible is not to fit into our life. Our life, in fact, is to fit into the word. And so the psalmist is saying, this is for all people. And if you want wisdom, you must hear from God. You must hear from God. Maybe you're thinking of that New Testament version of that. What does Paul say? All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. All scripture Paul says, is for your good. 
And he uses that word inspiration, the, the idea of being breathed out by God. And people have misunderstood that, not merely just to kind of lower that to say it's an inspirational word. But I think a lot of times the way in which we think about the word of God, it, it was man's best effort to understanding spiritual things. And so they write it down. If that's your view of the Bible, then you're not going to read it and you're certainly not going to use it because it doesn't have a whole lot of usefulness for your life. If this is just a book of collection of men and their work, you're not going to use it. But if you believe that it is divinely inspired, it will anchor and affirm your life and what it means to follow Christ. And so how we understand the word is how we understand wisdom and it's how we understand the world. And here the psalmist is saying, give ear, I've got some measure of wisdom for you. And if you want to understand it, I'm going to tell you about a difficult matter, but you need a biblical framework to understand it or look through. And so what is the circumstance? If he's calling to all people, what are the circumstances by which he is engaging them? Well, you can see it in verses 5 through 12. He's demonstrating what is happening for, uh, by which he is wanting to impart wisdom. He's got the attention of people. He wants them to be wise. He wants them to use the word. He wants them to know truth. And what is the simple truth that he wants you to know? Security is never found in riches. Eternal security for sure is not found in riches in this world. You get a circumstance, perhaps you can say, is he is suggesting, I feel insecure in the world. And yet the reality is my eternity is far more secure. But the opposite is true. For those who like to find security here, how frequently they are insecure for all matters of eternity. And so he is suggesting a circumstance that far outlives today, that there is a matter of the end that is before us. And the way in which he does it is he frames it in a question. What do I do? How do I respond? How do I think about this? Should I be afraid Should I capitulate to them? Should I try what they're trying? Should I work at what they're working at? Should I practice the ways of the world? Should I have their desires? Or in fact, should I do something different? It's it's, it's always giving you a crisis of faith. How do I know what is right and wrong? How do I believe in what is good? And so he says, if you trust in riches, it's not good. It will not end well for you. Now, he's certainly not trying to create this status in this world that says, if you're poor, then you're good. If you're rich, then you're bad. Poor, good, rich, bad. He's not saying that. He's qualifying what it means to be rich in an unhealthy manner. And that is simply that says, if you have riches and you trust in them, then there's something wrong, desperately wrong if your hope and faith is found in your possessions. And so what do we do? How do we respond? He says, people are surrounding me and they're cheating me. Am I to be afraid? How do I think about this? Should I try to get a lot of money? Is that the answer? And without ever having to say the word no, he shows it over and over, absolutely not. He uses quite intense uh, phrases, doesn't he? What does he say in verse 7? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. 
Why should you and I not trust in our riches? Because it cannot buy you away from death. It cannot save your life from the next. There isn't a ransom price, you might say, that any mere man can afford. The amount of your possessions will not escape death. Maybe you're thinking of Voltaire. Do you remember him? 1600s, 1700s? French philosopher, major critic of Christianity, loved to write. Maybe you've read some of his work. I think his greatest work was Candide. Do you remember that story at the end of Voltaire's life? He is literally about to die. And he tells his doctor, if you can save me and prolong my life six months, I'll give you half of what I have. I'll give you half of all that I have if you can give me six more months of life. A man who hates Christians and is willing to give half of his inheritance to this doctor just for six months of life. What is he saying? I want to buy my life. I'll give whatever I can give to save my life. And of course you know how it ended. The doctor can't save him. Nobody can save you from death but Christ alone. And so if we are trusting in our possessions, it will never, in fact, work. Riches, it might get you better health coverage. Maybe you get the better drugs, and I do mean that in the medicinal sense, not the illegal sense. Maybe you have a safety net of possessions. Maybe you have more money and you can buy better food. It will not buy you eternity. It cannot afford it. There's an American Presbyterian. He died a long time ago. I really love what he says about it. He says, death laughs at bags of gold. Death laughs at bags of gold. The justice of God holding fast. The sinner scorns the richest bribe. You cannot buy your life. And it is the world by which we live in. That's why we have the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. It's not merely just trying to enjoy today. It's a measure by saying, can I buy life? Or can I escape death? And the answer is no. And that's why Jesus says it in Luke 9. What is it? If you gain the whole world, and yet you forfeit your soul. What is it to you if you gain the entire world and yet you forfeit your soul? Death cannot be bought by any possession that you or I have. And so the psalmist says, almost in an obvious fashion, all will die. And you might be going, well, yes, everyone dies. That's an obvious statement. Why would you have to tell us that all die? Because I think what the psalmist is trying to say is, yes, everyone is certain that people will die, but we don't live that way. We don't think about that on a regular basis, that my life is not guaranteed by the end of this sermon or tomorrow. My life is not in my own hands. We don't live as though death were right on our doorstep. There are multiple ways by which we can see that in our own world. Take the military, for example. 
Why is it that they love 18-year-olds? It's not because they're the most physically fit of all specimen or the smartest. It's because they see themselves as invincible. They're not ignorant to the fact that they can die, but it is the mindset that says, I'm 18, I'm too young, and I will not die. I have such good health. I have been trained so well. I'm not going to die. I'm too young. And so they march in foolishly at times with that kind of mindset. We do the same thing. I looked at my bank account and it says I'm good. I have great security. I have a security system at my home. I was confronted with that this week. It was almost ironic. My security system stopped working and I thought, what does this mean? It meant the same thing when it was working. It's not providing an eternal security for me. Now, don't go tell anyone I just said that. I still need some safety as much as I can have it. But the reality is we love to think our things, our accounts, our homes, that they provide us measures of security and they will keep us from death. Death cannot be bought. And that's why the psalmist twice says it. What does he say? We are, man is pomp. Man in his pomp, we're no better. We're just like the beasts. I think he's got Genesis 1 through 3 in his mind. That God would create the world and he would create Adam and Eve in his own image and he would give them the charge of reflecting the glory of God and so having dominion over the beasts and over the earth. And then he gives them the command, do not eat of that tree. If you do, you will surely die. What was a part of the curse when Adam and Eve disobeyed? They no longer had true dominion. They, in fact, were dominated. They no longer were over the earth. They would be buried underneath it. And so I think he's saying in our trusting of ourselves and of our possessions, we are dominated by that which we are supposed to dominate. We are supposed to rule over it. That is how God made us. But we have been broken and we have trusted in ourselves and therefore we are the ones being ruled by creation rather than rightfully God-ordained ruling creation. And so I think he's demonstrating for us, do not trust in this world. Because if you do, you're no better than an animal. You know, we have a dog. She is wild and crazy. We could have used some wisdom and gotten one that was a much calmer, nicer, slower dog. But we didn't do that. We got one that looks just like the Myers. And, you know, I think about her regularly. She's very smart sometimes. She does not think about tomorrow, ever. And why do I know that? Because I can go home today and discipline her for doing something she's not supposed to do. And do you know what the chances are that she's going to do it tomorrow? Extremely high. It mattered not what I did to discipline her. She does not care about tomorrow. She doesn't have a mindset. That's a beast. They don't think about anything else but right now. Don't be like a beast. We're not to live for this world merely We're to live in this world with an understanding of a new world. That is how we were made. And so we are not to be consumed by the things of this world. 
And don't you appreciate how detailed this psalmist goes? Look at what he says in verse 11. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generation, though they called lands by their own names. We don't want to be forgotten. Give millions of dollars and we'll name a building after you. Not us as a church. We will not do that. If you don't have millions, give thousands and we'll give you a brick. That's the world that we live in. We have statues of people. We have buildings named after others. Why? Because we don't want to be forgotten. We want to live on. We want our legacy to live on. We do not want to be forgotten. Calvin rightly says, their desire should be to have their names written in the book of life and to be blessed before God and his holy angels, but their ambition is of another kind, to be renowned and extolled upon earth. And they receive such a reward. If that's what you live for, you receive it and then it's gone. And so what is the contrast? If that is the world and the circumstance that we find ourselves, what is the contrast? The psalmist is trying to demonstrate there are are two ways. There There are two lives. There are two pathways, you might say. Those who trust in riches and those who trust in God. And he's quite clear about these two different lives. He wants you to know what it means to trust in riches. And I do appreciate that he lets you know it doesn't mean you have to be rich to trust in riches. Look at what he says in verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. You don't have to have a lot of money to be consumed with a trust of riches. You can be consumed with such an idol and live for money even though you don't have it. You can approve of sinful acts, Paul will tell you in Romans 2, and still not be the one engaging or the one who has them. And so the psalmist is saying, don't trust in riches. And there's an image that he gives you. If that is you, if you trust in this world, you're like sheep appointed for Sheol. And then a very powerful image. Death shall be their shepherd. Consider that. You're like sheep. You know, the dumb animal that just walks without any hesitation, any observation, and is being led to the slaughter. And he says, and death will be your shepherd. That imagery, perhaps entirely opposite of what you remember from Psalm 23, of the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, the good shepherd who leads you in green pastures, leads you in and through valleys, provides a table in the presence of your enemies. That is the good shepherd, but the shepherd of death, it leaves you in eternal pain and misery, and that is where you are led. And so he says, if that is you, if you trust in riches, that's where you're going to be. Your keeper will be death itself. You will have emptiness, you will have sorrow, you will have pain. It's perhaps that image that you remember in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember Christian, he's, he's just encountered interpreter and interpreter's showing him a gentleman. He's got a muckrake. He's trying to clean up the ground, the, the straw and the sticks. It's, it's hard work, it's awful, it's terrible. And what is going on while he's cleaning this up There is a celestial crown above his head and he just will not look up. 
He's so focused on here and now. He's looking at the horrid of this life, and that's all he gives himself to. He will not look up. It's as though interpreter is trying to say, if you would just look up, if you would just acknowledge heaven, if you would just acknowledge the security that you can have with the great king, it's there for you. But as long as you look down, you're not just going to be led to destruction. You're distracted. You cannot see God because you give him no attention. And so Christian, he provides this statement that I find so powerful. He tells interpreter, oh, save me. Oh, deliver me from the muckrake. What a great statement. And then interpreter responds. Many pray that. Give me not riches is scarce. The prayer of one in 10,000. Many say I don't want to live in a difficult circumstance. But very few will say I don't want the riches of this world. I just want to be content with you. I just want my king. And so the psalmist says that is one path, that is one life. But there is a different one, there is another one. Verse 15, he begins and he says, but God. It's the moment of change, it changes everything. All of eternity is changed in these two words, but God. He's he's drawing the immediate contrast And he's not just trying to say it's a contrast. It is a contrast. He's saying, but God is the foundation of the contrast. He's not just trying to say there's a better option, although that is true. The founding of that option is God himself. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. He says he'll ransom my soul Isn't it wonderful there is another way of life? You do not have to hold the muckrake. But God, he ransoms the souls of sinners who look to him. You do not have to be concerned merely about today because there is a future, there is an eternity at hand. God has put eternity in the hearts of man. There is no thing in this world that can fill that void but him you're an eternal creature you have to think with an eternal mind and you have to have eternal desires if you want to be truly satisfied in this life and the psalmist is making an argument here it's a matter of redemption a matter of resurrection he's saying there is a new life You probably didn't notice it. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. That phrase that he says there, for he will receive me, it can actually be translated, for God will take me. Do you know where that phrase shows up? That phrase shows up in Genesis 5, 24. Not that you're supposed to have that one memorized. That is a passage detailing Enoch. Enoch, he walked with God and God took him. God took him. This psalmist has an understanding that there is another life. 
It's not just here. God takes people. God receives them. God redeems them. God resurrects them. There is more to this life than just today. And yes, you're not going to base all of your understanding, your doctrinal thought on the resurrection right here. But doesn't it blow your mind that this gentleman has an understanding of the resurrection? He doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't know Jesus' name. He has no clue about an incarnational ministry, no clue about what it's going to look like for Jesus to be perfect in every way. What he understands is God redeems people. God is gracious and he resurrects his people. It ought to challenge our faith. You and I should build our doctrine with the whole of scripture. This is all he has. He only saw these promises from afar, Hebrews 11. They didn't have the full scope. And you and I do. How incredible their faith. That not seeing what you see, not having what you have, they trust the Lord for redemption, for resurrection. Maybe you think about Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 1. In him, that is Christ Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You and I know who he's talking about. You know who the psalmist is talking about. And you and I are to live in light of it just as this author does. Because what the author is wrestling with, and you can see it, the measure of your life and the weight of sin cannot be afforded by anything that you or I have. And yet God himself is willing to pay a cost. There is a cost associated with your life. It's higher than you can afford, but not God. And he sends his son so that you might have redemption, ransom, resurrection, reception, that you might have this life and the next That's what provides hope and comfort. Sometimes we quote the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only comfort in life and in death? Not that I belong to myself. Not that I have tried my hardest. Not that I have succeeded in things. But I belong body and soul to Jesus. And that's what this psalmist is suggesting. Way before Jesus ever entered in. You want your soul, your life ransomed. You trust in God. There is a contrast. You can see it. And really the contrast comes at the end. You see the contrast at the end of their life, but the true difference is in how they lived. Yes, there's a different end, but there's a different life. Those who trust in Jesus live differently in this life to inherit the next. And the psalmist is saying, That's how you and I should understand. Don't be dirty for the dollar, as it were. Love Jesus and trust him. And so he provides a simple conclusion. Riches of the world, they're not gonna save you. You don't need to be afraid of those who are rich. You don't need to try to get more money, as it were. You don't need to trust in it. The implication, I think, what the psalmist is saying is, if you're a Christian... You do not assume or expect an easy life. 
You do not assume or expect one of great health and wealth. You do not assume and expect one free of suffering and tribulation and challenge. That there is no measure of confrontation needed with your family, with your friends, with your work. You're not going to live an easy life, but you will live a great next one because it will all end. You have been ransomed from this life and brought into the next. I think it's why Paul so often talks about your union with Christ because he's saying, do not find your identity. Don't find your citizenship here. You're aliens and strangers. Live with a different zip code, a heavenly one. That is where your hope lies. That is where you want to be found. Maybe it's the Jim Elliot quote, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to lose what he, or to gain that which he cannot lose. I think Jim's just quoting Jesus. Maybe Jesus had this psalm in mind when he was giving his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 6. Don't look for the things of this world. Don't trust in them. Don't put your treasures in places where, where rust can get in, where thieves can break in and steal it. Don't store up treasures in this world. Store up treasures in heaven. Live for a different life. You know, Ligon Duncan has a comment on this psalm that I found very helpful. We should trust God and use things not use God and trust things. We should trust God and use the things that God has given to us, not use God and trust things. You know, I think the best way to finish it is how Jesus has that encounter. We've talked about it before, actually. John chapter 11. Lazarus is not feeling well. He's sick. And Mary and Martha send word, he's not well, come. That ought to have been motivational enough, but Jesus says, not quite. We're going to wait a few days. The glory of God is about to be on display. And so he comes. And by the time he gets there, you know the story, don't you? Lazarus is dead. And I think it's Martha who he talks to first. And Martha is trying to let him know if you had been here, it would have been okay. He's been dead for so long and... Mary's in the house. By the time he gets to Mary, it's unraveling. It's not going well, and you remember it. Jesus weeps. Mary is weeping. Do you remember what he tells her? Remember what he says? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And I want to close with what Jesus says next. We stop right there. You remember what Jesus says next? Do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. Do you believe it? That's how you enjoy this life, and even more so the next. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you for such a good word and hard word. 
that we are easily distracted by the things of this world and the mirage of security that they tell us it provides. And yet when we base our security in this world, we learn of how insecure we are for the next. And so it's not as though there's a problem with how large our accounts are. There's a problem with how much we trust in them. And so we ask, O Lord, please help us not to store up treasures in this world, but to store up treasures in the next. May we not be found the rich fool that your life this very night is demanded. Might we be those who are considered faithful, who powerfully and faithfully and quickly responds to Jesus. I do believe it. Help my unbelief that we might find life to the full here and enjoy it all the more there. Help us to be a people who are willing to say, give ear all inhabitants of the world. I have wisdom, it's not my own, it comes from God himself. So feed us, O Lord, on your heavenly manna from your word and provide for us understanding that we might grow in wisdom. And all for Jesus' sake we pray, amen.